This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. In this episode, we meet Leon McCarran. Leon McCarran is a journalist, he's a filmmaker, he's a North Face explorer. He's written two books. His films have appeared on National Geographic, on the BBC, and he is also a good friend of mine and Pip Stewart's. Pip is not with us today because Pip has just started her newest, greatest adventure, which is being the mum to Willow. So Pip will be back as soon as she can, but I am going to be interviewing Leon myself. Leon, great to see you. Great to finally get a chance to do this. Welcome to the first mile. We've known each other for, I think, getting on for 10 years now. The first time we met that I can remember is this um, tall, long-haired, beardless Northern Irishman walking into an Explorers Connect event. Yeah, I I think you've got a stronger memory of that time than I, I do. I remember meeting you, but I also remember that whole time as being a bit of a his. That was very much a... A period in my life where I was trying to figure out how to do this adventure thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But and then after that, either one or both of us spent a long time playing hard to get, and we didn't see very much of each other for a few years. So it's been nice that we're both in London now. It's been great. We've had lots of dates recently, which has been very nice. We have. You're you're a very good person to date. <laughs> um, and of course, Pip, you know, from I think she came with you on your journey through the Middle East that you wrote about in the Land Beyond. Yeah, I'd, I'd met Pip shortly before I set off on that journey, and I suppose we'd gotten to know each other a little bit and, and realised that we were interested in similar things. And then midway through that journey, for various reasons, I was looking for people to come out and join me for short sections to give some company and add a new perspective. And wonderfully, Pip wanted to do so. And, and she came out actually for a really interesting section, just uh through Wadi Rum and um, down towards Aqaba in the south of Jordan. And it was a, it was an interesting time uh, for both of us, given exactly where we were. Was this the smugglers route? Yes. Yeah. And it was, I mean, so all of Jordan had been such a safe, pleasant, wonderful place to be. And the only area that was even remotely uh, sensitive and we had to be cautious about was this smuggling route, which is uh, just over the mountains to Aqaba and... This was Pip's first introduction to the walking life. So she came out and we we wandered through. And the first couple of days were very pleasant. And then we did have one slightly uncomfortable night with our, there's a few other people with us. And, um, you know, there were pickup trucks coming in the middle of the night and lots of sketchy looking people uh, wondering why we were wandering through the desert. And if we were also smuggling something that we shouldn't have been. <laughs> but, but that was when I knew that Pip was a very good person to travel with because she took it all in her stride. I think other people might have turned and walked very quickly the other way. Well, she isn't here today, so maybe she hasn't quite recovered from this experience. Maybe that's true. Maybe maybe she's now um, <laughs> staying well clear. 
I mean, there is the fact that she has just given birth is another reason why she isn't here. But um, I'm glad to know that she coped well. I just love the idea of Pip being in the middle of a smuggler's route. Uh, she's just so delightful and excited about everything. I, well, I think if we had, we did meet one smuggler and uh, our Bedouin companion and friend, Suleiman, did most of the talking to them. But I think if the smugglers had wanted to talk to us, Pip would have just charmed them anyway, and I'm sure it would have been fine. <laughs> um is there any particular travel experience that you've had, and you've had quite a few, that has helped shape the way you approach travel? There's been many. I used to be very attracted to go to places based on landscapes. Those were the things that captured my imagination. But what I realised quite quickly was that when I'd been to those places and came back, the memories that stayed with me were much more people-focused. And, and so those are the things that have been most impactful to me. Shortly before I met Pip in, in Jordan, I was walking through the centre of the country. I'd been on this journey for a few months. I'd walked a few hundred miles and I'd been camping out a lot. And I just wanted to get to this next town to stay in a, a building and, and find a little guest house. And so after 15 or 16 hours of walking, this gentleman came out of his home in his village just as the sun was going down and, and sort of gently came over to me and, and swept me up and, and took me inside his home. And he made some food for me and, and made a bed for me to stay the night. And, and then he asked me what I was doing, which I loved that that was the order of business, right? That you look after the person first and then you ask them who the heck they are and why they're in your front room. And when I told him I was on this long walk, he brought in his two sons and asked me something I'd never been asked before, which was whether I would allow him and his sons to wash my feet because they must be so sore after such a, a long day and long journey. And he insisted on going through this process. And uh, I was very anxious because my feet were toxic and my socks were green. But he he did it and they, they came and they brought this jug of water and ritually bathed my feet. And I stayed there the night and the next day I was sent on my way. And when I think about the sorts of interactions that I feel really privileged to have had and really proud to share, it's people like Mahmoud in, in central Jordan that come to mind every single time. It's quite a remarkable encounter and it's almost unimaginable for somebody from England to imagine doing. And so many of your journeys have been framed around the ones that I know about, about the cultural insight and experience of encountering people. Do you think that those sorts of interactions and that generosity that Mahmoud showed you are not present in places like Britain anymore? Or do you think it's just that we haven't had the opportunity to practice those sorts of interactions? No, I, I think they are present. I think they, they all take different forms. I'm a big champion for thinking broadly about how all of us as humans around the world are more similar than, than we are different, but equally that those differences that we do have should be celebrated. And, and so there are differences culturally and uh, religiously and, and so on that we, that we might have in how we treat strangers or how we respond to unusual interactions. But I do think we have that here. And I've experienced that on journeys here. And I've, my first big adventure was riding a bicycle across the US. And, you know, that's a place that a lot of people are quite scared of for many reasons. And I, I met lots of people who carried guns and had them in their homes and supported Donald Trump and so on. But they welcomed me in and, you know, gave me a place to stay and looked after me. And of course, I'm always aware that, as with any of us, we all travel with a certain set of attributes, which 
impact the type of reaction we will receive, right? So I'm a a, a white English speaking male with a British and Irish passport. So of course I'll have a different experience than someone else might have, and I can only really speak for myself. But I find that same welcome here in the UK, in the Western world, in the Middle East, just about everywhere. It's intriguing that you do mention about how different people have different experiences. I think one of the challenges with travel journalism and travel writing generally is places are explained as or spoken about from the context of the obviously that's all you can do but of the person that went there and having a diversity of voices helps you understand a place better because everybody has a very different experience when you go to places. Yeah I I agree with that and I, I also think that for people like me who spend a lot of time in regions broader regions like the Middle East I will always be a, an outsider there. I'll always be somehow alien. But there's still a great value to be had in showing how I, as someone so different, seemingly um, on the surface from from people that are still uh, welcomed in or, or opened up to or, or so on. Um, and I think the other thing that people like me or, or all of us can do in our own way is use the platforms that we have or that we create to give the voices that we find their own stage to talk, right? So, I mean, most of the travel writing I enjoy and the travel writing I try and create myself is really just using myself as a vehicle to let other people tell their story in their own words. Yeah, I've I've really admired over the last year or two how you've started to use Instagram very powerfully, particularly using Instagram stories at the top to tell a story. How did you come to it in the first place? When I first met you at Explorers Connect, I think you'd just finished film school. What was the route that you took into doing this? And how has it changed to where you're at now? It's very hard, really, to to draw the line. If I was to draw the line between where I started and where I've ended up, it it would be a squiggle all over the page. What I would say is that very little of how I got here was intentional. A lot of it just happened organically. And and at each juncture, there was a chance to decide to do the thing I cared about and the thing I I thought would be worthwhile or to do something else. And and so really, that's been my only driving um, constant has been to always try and do the thing that felt worthwhile. In a very practical sense, it started by having finished university, not knowing what to do. What did you study? Uh, I studied film and English, and I did this for three years as an undergrad. Came out with a good degree, um, but I graduated in 2008 into a recession, and I'd, I'd wanted to go off and see the world and, and try to do something, and I, I came up with this idea of a, a glorified gap year, let's say, where I spent another year after university saving up, had a few thousand pounds, and went off to try and ride a bicycle as far around the world as I could get. I never hoped to get all the way around the world because that seemed much too ambitious, but I just wanted to start somewhere far away from home, so I didn't have any option to give up and and keep going and see how far I could get. And in the end, I rode probably fourteen or 15,000 miles in 18 months on the first stint of that. And I found it very, very challenging to be in with. I was completely inept and incapable in, in of all of the things you need to do to look after yourself on a bicycle in a new country and continent. Had you been much of an adventurer, outdoorsy type person leading up to this? I'd grown up in the countryside in Northern Ireland, so mm. I, I was I was comfortable in the outdoors, and I I think I had a very healthy admiration and respect for the natural world. What I wasn't particularly experienced with was the social side of of travel or of moving through new places. I hadn't travelled widely. 
had very rarely spent time in in other cultures. I, at university, of course, I was exposed to people from all over the world, and and so I learned a great deal about the world through that. But traveling in new places and and finding myself as the sole outsider that was all completely new and a real shock to the system when I when it happened. And were you documenting this journey as well as you went along it? Yeah, I, I hope to. I I. I I had mixed success in that first time because I, I underestimated the impact that the journey would have on me. I mean, this was a young man seeing the world for the first time, and that in itself is an all-encompassing experience. So I'd hoped to record visually the experiences I had and, and interview people on different topics and, and, and kind of see myself as this traveling, cycling reporter gathering stories around the world. But it was just too much. For me, honestly, I was I was just dealing with the emotional and physical toll of 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 being out on this grand adventure for the first time, uh, and I, I I journaled everything. That was one of the things I did do quite well. So when I eventually finished, I was able to use those notes to put together a book. But the the video side of it was, you know, I can see now how naive I was, and um, it's often a if I'm ever asked um, to give advice, I, I often say. Don't underestimate how much early journeys and forays into the world can take on your emotional being. It's it's everything, and, and it should be. That's the most fun part of it. But don't don't try and do too much. I think there's a great temptation to try and document everything you do for some form of external consumption, whether that's to try and get it funded, to try and put it on Instagram. I mean, even when I did the new Iron Curse, and I was only doing Instagram posts every day, as well as filming the whole thing. Uh, to try and turn that into a documentary and just doing the Instagram every day took up a whole load of time and to try and film something well is an enormous undertaking and I'd already done documentaries and everything by that point filming the Lev Wood series so to try and do that on the first one it, but of course at the time you have no idea so you sort of have to go through that crucible in order to know how challenging it is. Yeah, and, and and you do know this better than than most people. It's it's very very hard, and and there's a through line between all of these things, is which is that you're trying to tell a story and that you're trying to accurately represent this experience that you're having. But I wonder if you'd agree with me. I, I think what I've come to discover is that less is definitely more, and and it's taken me the best part of a decade to really hone in to what it is that I care about the most in terms of the the medium of telling that story. And what is it that you care about most now? I'm I'm most interested in how people relate to one another. And I, I'm interested in these common threads of humanity. Can you remember a moment when you started to consolidate that? What was the feeling? You said you'd started very much with landscape. Was there a particular encounter or a project that helped shape that? After I after I finished my cycling trip, I planned another journey, which was a, a much more focused trip, although also a very long one to walk the length of China with a friend and adventurer called Rob Lowell. And I, I remember on that, starting in the northern edge of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and walking down through the desert and finding these nomads who brought us into their gear home and 
looked after us well. And then we crossed the border into China and wandered down and, and we would meet these people who would tell us the same things about their family and about their jobs and about what they they hoped for in life and what they find frustrating and their their issues with government and policy, but their their love for music and culture. And, and I think that was the moment somewhere along that journey, I could see this familiarity in, in what I was hearing between the, the middle of um, China and the middle of North America. And I thought, you know, these places we're told repeatedly are so different and, and that these people um, have so little in common, but that's just absolutely not true. And I think that directed a lot of where I went with work after that. I'm also interested in how the method in which we as storytellers or travelers or outsiders approach communities and journeys and and ideas uh, affects the stories that we hear. So I, I'm a great advocate of traveling on foot. I think it it adds a, a vulnerability, it adds a, an excitement to the trip, it, it makes it slower, but it makes the experience broader and richer. And I think there's also a lot to be said for when you arrive in a place, you're somehow validated as a traveler and as a fellow human just by the very act of being willing to be covered in sweat and dirt and mud um, and having got there with your worldly possessions on your back. So I'm interested in, in how we the tools of how we tell stories um, as a second thing. And and then I suppose the the third part of my interest is parts of the world that I feel are poorly represented or misunderstood according to the the types of media that I grew up with. So let's say the, the media in this country in the UK, the places that we broadly demonize or, or tend to demonize. I, I like to look at those places and, and find a different reality. Of course, you come from Northern Ireland, which is a place that historically has had social challenges and a, a long running conflict. I wonder if that maybe is part of the reason why you've got a bit more empathy for places that are badly represented. Yeah, it, it, it very well might be. I, of course, growing up in Northern Ireland with not much experience of the outside world, I didn't necessarily know that until I started to travel. And, and then I started to realise that either no one had ever heard of Northern Ireland or certainly didn't know anything about its status. And, and then if they did, it was because of conflict-related reasons. And that struck me as uh, something that seemed a shame, given that the Northern Ireland I knew and, and still love is not a, a place of active conflict. It's it's a place that has many of the values of everywhere else that I was going. The place you're probably best known for documenting recently has been the Middle East. And from reading your book, from knowing you, and from what many others, including Pip, who, whilst he was travelling with you, have been very impressed by, is the depth of knowledge you have about a place. Like, uh, I think Pip specifically said that you're not the sort of person that turns up with no idea of where you are. What are the steps that you take to getting to know a place? And what was it about the Middle East specifically that drew you to it? The first time I really went to the Middle East for any amount of time was actually in 2012, when I went to cross the Empty Quarter Desert with Alistair Humphreys. And we dragged this large steel cart full of our supplies for a thousand miles uh, from one end of the edge of the desert um, around to the other and that was about as clever of an idea as it sounds it was a very hard and uh long trip but but we really enjoyed it and we enjoyed the simplicity of it and we made a film about mostly about our experience but when i came back i saw that the reaction to the film was very much positive 
although there was a, a great deal of YouTube comments and, you know, messages through our websites and so on with viewers who were just dismayed that two foreigners, two white people could wander through the Middle East without getting their heads chopped off or, or something horrible happening. And it, it just, um, that was really my first realisation that this is not just a problem related to newspapers like the Daily Mail. You know, there is a, there are people who have, the best intentions, but still don't necessarily know because they've never been given an opportunity to know what a lot of these parts of the world are really like. So uh, if we go back to my process now, I, I, I try and always keep that in mind that perhaps there'll be a, a, a real variety in in how much people reading my work will know. Some will know a lot and some will know very little, but I, I try and make sure that it's accessible even to people who, who know almost nothing at all. And I, I just try and sketch the place from the ground up and make that picture as, as vibrant as I possibly can. And that involves reading as widely as I can before I go, speaking to people who work in those places, speaking to people from a variety of backgrounds who work in those places. When I work in Iraq right now and in the Kurdish region in the north, of course, there's a number of wonderful books by foreigners who've travelled through, but if I just read those, I would only ever get that perspective. So it's important to also read the work by Iraqi authors and Iraqi historians and novelists. And I reach out a lot on social media to find people who work in these places, both locally and international. And I I just try and let it wash over me so I'm totally immersed in a place, in its culture, in the ideas around it, in my own excitement and enthusiasm for it. And then I go. The point you make about how easy it is to just read about foreigners traveling through a place without reading about the place from the perspective of the people who live there. I It took me a couple of months to realize it, but I was making that mistake when looking at my journey along the New Iron Curtain. I was reading reports and books about Russian activities and the post-Soviet area by foreign policy experts from the UK. But I was reading very little from Russians or from people from mm. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania or Belarus or Ukraine about their own experience. And it was only when I started to read that that I suddenly was able to start putting myself in their shoes and empathise and actions, choices or cultural aspects that seemed odd when read purely from the frankly British imperial perspective suddenly started to make a lot more sense when you saw it from the other side and it's only when you can do that that you can really feel for a place yeah it's it's true and yeah I'm really interested that you came to a similar conclusion as I did it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate for people just going out and seeing the world is that yes of course we can talk about this and, and we can offer advice whether we're qualified or not you know we can tell people our own experiences of how we've come to these decisions and thoughts but it's also just something you discover by being out in the world you suddenly realize that there there are a hundred different perspectives and and all of them have some sort of value some more than others but but there are so many ways to look at the same problems and um and the more time you spend on the ground and in any area of the world the more you realize that I don't want to go into it too deeply, but I would definitely recommend that anybody listening checks out the work that you did in Yemen and also the journey that you did through southern Iraq. Mm -hmm. What was the name of the pilgrimage you went on? The pilgrimage on? is called Arba'in, um, and it's the largest annual pilgrimage in the world. There's, depending on the year, there can be anywhere between 15 and 25 million Shia pilgrims who walk between two holy cities in southern Iraq. 
and I joined them in 2018 to write about it. And it is a is an incredibly rich experience, even from the outside. It was amazing to follow you on that and see how you documented it. And you could really feel the fondness and the connection with the people. You did it incredibly well. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's, it. Very, that's very kind of you to say so. And I, that's, that means a lot, not just because it's you saying it, but uh, but also because... You know, we have to be really careful what we how we represent these things. We we are coming in and 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 acting under the wing and and under the hospitality of people from within these communities. And you know, of course, journalistically, we we want to be impartial and to represent things fairly and accurately. But it would be so easy to to draw on the exotic and and the wilder aspects of of these sorts of events. But that's, I mean, this was a family-oriented uh, human encounter that I had. And, and so to frame it any other way just wouldn't have felt right. And, and But it's it's the thing that takes up most of my time, really, and, and probably most of my emotional energy is wrangling with whether or not I'm getting this right and doing it in the right way. Um, walking is a really integral part of what you do. And you spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of years opening up new walking routes in uh, the Middle East, in northern Iraq, and in China. What are your views on opening up countries to tourism? It's, it's something that's quite new to me to take my own experiences of walking and and layer that on top of ideas of ecotourism and, and community-based projects and places. And I, I think we, we have to be very careful with how we open places up to tourism, particularly areas like parts of the Middle East I've been working in and and in central China. But I the, the trails that we've been working on are generally in areas where life has been very tough for, for people. There's, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to kind of draw together quite different areas here, but if I was to put it under one umbrella, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of people who've been living with very, very little for, for a long time. And, um, and in northern Iraq, of course, as well, there's been a great deal of conflict and, and we're only just about into a post-conflict era for them. And so bringing in hiking trails, yes, it brings in foreigners, but it, it also gives a way for local people to rediscover their own landscapes and to form a better connection with it. So you know, one of our goals in the, the Kurdish region is to allow people from the cities to learn about these mountains that are, are their home and, and to learn why those mountains should be looked after, why they shouldn't be littered upon. And for the communities along the way, it, it gives a chance to open up a brand new type of cash economy, to be guides or to have homestays or there's there's any number of impacts that open up. And it, it has to be very well managed. Um, I don't think there's been huge numbers of people dashing off to northern Iraq anytime soon to go hiking. It's, it's still far from that. But those of us who do um, help design these trails and projects do have to manage the numbers because it can be damaging too. But I suppose the final thing I'll say on it is that with the right plan, it becomes a great way to create positive impact for everyone who lives in those areas and those coming in from the outside. And in China, the one thing we saw is that life in rural areas where we were working has become very tough. And so a lot of the young people have moved away to the cities for a better life. Creating trails and, and projects related to that, development projects related to that, gives a reason for people to come back and may well be the thing that saves that type of lifestyle and, and cultural heritage, tangible or, or otherwise. And, and so looked at from that perspective, this can be a way to keep things alive. 
I think one of the other second or third order effects is seeing you documenting it through the way that you do so well through Instagram has given me an insight into these places. I I mean, I know Iraq a little, but I've mm-hmm. never been to um, the Kurdish regions. And certainly I know nothing about central China. So the mere fact that you're working on these helps draw awareness of many people to these places in a way that they may never have had otherwise. And I think that's a, a wonderful second effect of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if if you if we look back at that process of starting from zero, there's a very real chance that a lot of people may not know what it's like to travel in China at all. I mean, it's it's a communist country. Does that mean we can travel around on our own? Is everyone are we being watched all the time? You know, can we get to this place in the center of the country? And even just to be able to answer those questions and say yes, of course you can travel freely, is good. And yeah, the fact there's an autonomous region in the north of Iraq, populated predominantly by Kurds and it's mountainous and beautiful. That's also something that's not a lot of people might know about Iraq. And there's benefit just to sharing that. Before we started earlier on, we were talking about the philosophy of the jobs that both of us do and the amount of time that we spend away. And your work has taken you to several different areas. You've been doing the trailblazing in central China and northern Iraq. You've been doing the adventures you did earlier on, uh, been writing books. Do you think the type of travel, the terms used, matter? I know we've spoken before about not feeling particularly comfortable with the term adventurer and moving more into journalism. Do you have any sort of thoughts on this? Is it something that matters? Um, it can matter. I've probably given it more credence than I should have in the past. I think it's very hard to self-appoint labels, for one. I'm I'd much happier be assign something by others. But then, you know, we we run our own businesses, essentially. So we have to introduce ourselves, we have to have bylines, we have to have websites. And so you need to put something on there. And I think I change the title of my website every couple of months. Well, I'm glad you do, because I I think I do as well. And I've never settled. Adventurer doesn't really describe what I do. Um, I I wouldn't use Explorer. I know some people do. And I, I know issue with that, but I wouldn't use it. I feel like Explorer has a a very specific connotation of trying to discover something or find something uh, and bring new knowledge. It also is tied into the past, I think, quite strongly. Adventurer is great. I mean, it's someone who goes on adventures, and I think adventures are mostly something that we have internally. So yes, I do do that, but it doesn't necessarily describe really what I do. So I as you can probably tell from right now, I just get myself in a muddle with it. And what I do do is tell stories. And storyteller would probably be the best thing, but that seems too pretentious, so I've never been brave enough to do that. Um, I write, I make films, I, I now I make trails. But the thing that connects all of those is stories, and I think you're probably the same. Would you ever call yourself a storyteller? I have called myself a storyteller on my website, actually. I've gone for writer, filmmaker and storyteller. Well, uh, maybe I should follow your lead. <laughs> because if there's two of us, then it's it's immediately it's less It's now an industry. Yeah. We could set up the storytelling society. Perhaps we could. <laughs> um, let's move on to some more rapid fire questions now. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out? I... When I started out, I got very preoccupied with how other people made a living of this because it, it seemed to be so hard for me to to work out how to actually monetize this and, and, and make it sustainable as a career. And what I know now is that what people say about themselves and, and the image that they put forward is not necessarily always what's true. 
um, some of the most talented and experienced people I know in the adventure and journalism world are, are still, they still find it a struggle. It's the greatest job in the world in so many ways, but it's also very hard. So I, I didn't realise early on that what people might put out to the internet and the, the wider world is not necessarily always a, a reflection of how well things are going for them. The majority of my income still comes from corporate video production, either directly through my company, Digital Dandy, making stuff for brands or universities, or working as a freelancer, working in a commercial production company. And it's stuff like that that funds my travel. So I'm completely with you there about how it's not always what it appears. Mm. Um, What is a place that you love to return to, or what are your most over and underrated travel destinations? Well, I'm I'm probably rather obvious and predictable with this, but I find myself so comfortable in the Middle East and I, the, the north of Iraq, the Kurdish region in the north of Iraq, I could just go to again and again, and I, and I do. And it's somewhere that is deeply misunderstood and, and so on. And, and I think there's a lot of places like that in that region and, and other parts of the world, but that's where I've been drawn to again and again. Um, overrated destinations is hard. I mean, I, I, I do think that... Anywhere that shows up in a Google search result more than 100 times is probably going to be, if not a slight disappointment when you actually get there, it's going to not match up to your expectations because anything that shows up that amount of times is going to be very popular, there's going to be a lot of other people there. Whilst I like to research places, I don't like to have too many expectations of what it'll be like. So generally... I mean, it's a travel cliche to get off the beaten track and all of that sort of stuff, but but there's a, a reason for it. Anywhere that is just overpopulated with tourists and travellers is, is going to be hard to find anything that really impacts on you there. Something else I've started to reflect on in relation to this is the impact of Instagram and YouTube on travel. Because now if somebody goes anywhere, they're going to watch a couple of YouTube videos about it or they're going to look at it on Instagram and develop a, a concept or an image of it. Even when I went to New Zealand in 2007, all I knew of the places I went to was the Rough Guide, which had like a couple of photos of a lake and a map. And therefore I had no real image of what I was going to see. And I just turned up and discovered the place and the map became real, which is a completely different concept. Right. And the first time you see like Wanaka for yourself, I mean, it, it blows your mind. But if, if you've seen it a hundred times before and, and you've read about every single activity you can possibly do in the wider area, I'm sure it's still great, but you, you do feel like you're never going to exceed those expectations. And, and the joy of travel should be in just having your mind expanded in all these ways you could never have predicted. Yeah, just take a guidebook and see what happens. Um, if you had to give a TED talk about something that you are not known for, what would it be and why? Probably be something to do with music. I, I Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, music was the majority of my life until I started traveling. And I, I grew up in a very musical area and, and played sort of Irish traditional instruments as well as guitars and so on. And and I've always, I, I kind of carry that interest with me. And, and the, the thing that de-stresses me and relaxes me most in the world to this day is is playing music. So I, I'd probably, I'm still trying to find a way to shoehorn this into my life, but I'd love to do a project related to looking at music in different communities and and, and then giving my award-winning TED Talk on it. This is amazing. I had no idea. I can't wait to see you perform at our next Storytelling Society event. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll be the warm-up act for, for you probably, actually. <laughs> um, I cannot play any musical instruments. 
Is there a tool or technique that has helped you along your journey, whether that's your career journey or a physical one, that you like to use when things aren't going well? That's a hard question to answer because I, I think a, a lot of the techniques that we use become so internalized that it's hard to articulate them. But the one thing I will say without wanting to sound too trite or cliched about it is that since very early on, I've been fully committed to this lifestyle Right, and I know you and I have talked about this a lot. This this idea that you have to throw yourself into this to make it work, and and you have to turn down other opportunities and and really want this to work out. And it doesn't for everyone, and it's it's uh, you know we're we're so fortunate to be in the position we're in. But when things have been tough in the middle of expeditions or on projects, or when I'm at home just trying to find more work, the idea and the knowledge that I have holistically given myself to this as a career I find very encouraging because it immediately cuts off that option for retreat right there's not something else I I just think well I can go off and do that other entirely different thing um, instead and forget about all of this so just knowing that this in one sense or another was what I wanted and going after it has actually given me a lot of comfort that's good. Maybe I should stop doing the corporate video production. But that's part of what you do as well. I mean, that, that ties into that ties into all of it. That keeps your your chops ready for when you're out traveling the world as well. Very true. It does keep me excited about getting out of the edit suite. What would you do now if you weren't doing what you do? I would probably be a postman. <laughs> or why a postman? Because I I like to get up early. And I like meeting people and I would quite like to be a walking or cycling postman. Do postmen meet people? Briefly, but it's on their terms, you know, (laughs) (laughs) quite like that too. Uh, Everyone's friendly to you. You get cups of tea, biscuits, uh, you meet a lot of dogs. Being a postman in Northern Ireland is clearly quite a different experience to being a postman in London. It it might be being a postman in the sort of 1940s that I'm thinking of. (laughs) Is your notion of being a postman based on that documentary series, Postman Pat? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great documentation of what life's like as a postman in a small village in rural England. Yeah, it was was very real, very gritty. (laughs) So I I would enjoy that. Or being a tree surgeon seems to be nice, outdoors, uh, helping trees. Or probably more realistically, I might have just become a, a more focused journalist or work in an NGO sphere somewhere doing something like that. But I still hold out hope for the postman. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any recommendations of books, films or podcasts that people could dig into to get more of an idea about some of the things we've talked about, whether that's either the strategies that you've used or some of the areas that you've traveled to? Um, Podcast wise, let's say I love listening to the long form podcast, which is a series of long form journalists who come on and talk about what they do. Um, I find that fascinating for years. Our Man in the Middle East was a great BBC series about the Middle East and, and Jeremy Bowen. And, you know, it's a real insight both into the region, but also into uh, BBC's coverage of it. And I, I really like Ramblings with Claire Baldwin on, on Radio 4, which is just a, which is also a podcast where she just goes for a walk with people and talks to them along the way. It's a really lovely, simple idea. Um, there's lots of great books on writing. Um, one is called On Writing, the Stephen King book. Uh, there's Bird by Bird, which is another good one. The book that I have read recently that has made the biggest 
impact on me, which I, I've talked to you about and which changes the way I look at everything, uh, is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, which has made me realise that all of the adventure and storytelling and everything else we do should be seen under the banner of the changing climates and how we respond to that. Well, Leon, I think your greatest new habit is that you will get this book for anybody that you think <laughs> should read it. And it's actually sat up here on my desk behind me and I've <laughs> not been brave enough to read it yet because I think it will change my life quite significantly. Yeah, you do need to be in a very good mood to start it so that um, it can bring you down uh, quite a bit <laughs> before you finish. Um, mate, it's been great chatting to you. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to find out what you're doing? Do you use Instagram, Twitter? I know you use Instagram. Yes, I'm I'm fortunate to have a, an unusual enough name that all of my tags and websites and so on are, are just my name, leonmccarran.com, at leonmccarran. I will respond to everything and anything, and I'm, uh, I'm across most of the platforms. Great to speak to you, mate. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to see where you go next. Yeah, pleasure to be on. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. We've really enjoyed making this show and we'd love it if more people could hear it. So if you have enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find The First Mile. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It really doesn't have to be long. Send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or simply take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us in it at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart. Then go and put your feet up with a nice cup of tea. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.